Father, indeed, it is because our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross with Christ. He bore our sin for us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And because of that, we can come to you confessing our sin, being assured of pardon, being assured of eternal life, being assured of communion with you forever. And so, Lord, we rejoice. May we show our gratitude in the way in which we sing and the way in which we listen to your word read, preached, and the way in which we obey your word in our everyday lives. We ask that you would help us in this. Holy Spirit, please sanctify us to this purpose. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's such a joy to be with you today. I was speaking with someone this week, and they commented on how hard and what a burden it must be to come up with a sermon every week, essentially write a 20-page paper every week, and deliver it orally. Of course, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now, and so I know you thought I was about 30 years old, but uh, I've been doing this for quite a while. It's not nearly as difficult as it used to be, but even in those early years, I have to say, Preparing and preaching is my favorite thing to do, even back then. It is my, not a burden, but a supreme joy of my week, week after week, month after month, year after year. Really, it is my supreme joy to study and preach the Word of God, to spend time studying the Word of God. You know, I was thinking about uh, going through this book of Matthew. Now we are about five years in and uh, coming to our close very, very soon. And uh, I'm already starting to miss the book of Matthew. And uh, think about the fact that over the last five years, pretty much every day of every week, all five years, I've been thinking about something about Jesus, something he said, something he did, some way in which he helped people, loved people, and of course, ultimately how he provided atonement on the cross. And uh, it is my joy to do this and bring you the Word of God. So it is our privilege. Never want to lose sight of the fact that God uses the Word of God, uses His Word to save and sanctify His people. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And here we have a testimony written down for us, a written account, one of several, of the murder of the Son of God. As we learned, this was the greatest evil perpetrated by the human race. And it seemed no one was guiltless on that day. Everyone was culpable from the most evil all the way down to the disciples themselves, all were part of the wickedness on that sad day. But the most tragic day in human history, the most evil day in terms of human depravity, is the very thing that God preordained for the redemption of the very people who were killing Him and many others. And this is the wonderful truth that we celebrate and study as we come to His Word how is God going to do that? How is God going to use this terrible tragedy, this horrible evil? Well, it's by making Jesus the atonement for sin. Atonement, as I pointed out, is the amends for trespass. God is holy in His holiness. He must love perfectly, yes. He must show grace perfectly. He must demonstrate kindness. These are all things that we want, but He also must punish sin. If God is to perfectly execute justice, there cannot be one molecule of sin unaccounted for, unpunished. Forgiveness is not free. It's free for us if we believe. 
That's only because someone else, namely Jesus, paid the price. He received the punishment of God for our sin. That's atonement. That's what it talks about in Isaiah when it says he was crushed for our iniquities. Now, how do we know? What's the evidence of Jesus' atonement, that that atonement actually worked and that it's true? Well, ultimately, it's the resurrection, right? The resurrection is a key physical eyewitness evidence that all God did in Jesus, all Jesus said and all Jesus did was true, especially the fact that he came to provide his life as an atonement, as a ransom for many. God validated Jesus' words and work by raising him up, having accepted the atoning sacrifice. So get this in your mind. The resurrection is the capstone. It's the pinnacle evidence when it comes to knowing that this atonement was true, that it truly satisfied God's wrath against it. That penalty for our sin is truly paid in full. However, there are other evidences that Christ's atonement was satisfactory. Depending on how you number them, Matthew reported at least three more validating miracles, miracles with thousands of eyewitness accounts, miracles that preach to us that the atonement worked, that it was indeed a satisfactory atonement on our behalf, that it did appease and please the Holy God so that we can be saved for His glory. These miracles, these evidences are the final place we're going to look at as we consider this subject, the atonement. At least three Sundays today, the last two Sundays we were together, we've looked at several aspects of the atonement. All this is drawing from the account here in Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54, which I will read. But also we've looked at some other important passages about atonement, like Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, and Romans 3. So let's start again. Let's read this passage, Matthew 27, 45 to 54. When I get to verse 51, pay special attention. That's what we're going to be looking at today, these miracles, miracles that demonstrate the satisfactory nature of the atonement. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait, let's see, if whether Eli- let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Miracles. We have read our Bibles. We read stories, Bible accounts of miracles. And if we're all honest with ourselves, I think the first place 
that we want a miracle is in our own lives, right? We think about what's going on in our own lives, and we sing along with Mike and the mechanics, all I need is a miracle. Think about our finances, our family, some sort of physical struggle, some other struggle in our life, and we, when we think of miracles, when we ponder miracles, usually we just think about our own selves, our own lives getting easier, getting better. We want a miracle because it would make our lives a little bit more bearable. Now, there's nothing wrong about asking for a miracle. You have not because you ask not, James said. So we, we want to ask God that He would move in a miraculous way sometimes in our lives. It's not wrong to ask for a miracle, but I do think it would be selfish and definitely theologically incorrect to think that the main purpose of God's miracles are to make our lives easy. That's usually about as deep as most people think of miracles, right? God has this pocket full of tricks, a miracle he can pull out, and if you ask him sincerely enough or long enough, perhaps he'll pull out a trick and do it for you. If that's all you think about miracles, that kind of thinking will lead you to a false gospel called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is a heretical gospel. It's really no gospel at all. It teaches that essentially God's chief end is to glorify man, to make our lives better. You've reduced the purpose of miracles down to getting what you want. You miss the purpose of miracles, and worse, you may be headed in the wrong direction toward a false gospel. But if you look at the miracles in the Bible, what you find is that the purpose of miracles is not primarily and ultimately for our benefit to prove God's existence to us or make our lives more bearable. What are miracles for? R.C. Sproul said it this way, God performs miracles to to prove the legitimacy and the validity of an agent of revelation. It's a mouthful. Of someone whom God has commissioned to speak his word. You follow this? When you look at the Bible, what you find out, what you discover, is massive clusters of miracles around those who had been appointed by God to bring the message of God to people. That was the ultimate purpose of miracles, to validate the message of God to the human race. If you look at the Bible, these miracles do come in clumps. You see a lot of miracles around Moses and Joshua, of course, that was when the law was written. Many miracles around Samuel and David and Solomon, that was when the history part of the Old Testament was written, and then many miracles clumped around Elijah and Elisha. Of course, that would represent the miracles around the prophets. And then, of course, when Jesus arrived, you have a flurry of miracles all in Jesus' life, thousands performed by whom? The Word of God, the ultimate logic revelation of God, God in flesh. Well, all that to say, it should be no surprise to us that when Jesus died, there were miracles that validated His Word about His death, what Jesus had said. Of course, it it ties it all together. In fact, these miracles tie all the miracles together and all the revelation together in the ultimate revelation, Jesus Christ. Jesus said He was the Son of Man, that He'd come to lay His life down for His sheep, to pay atonement as a ransom for many. It should be no surprise to us that God then sent validating miracles to tell us that what Jesus said was indeed true. It was a satisfactory 
atonement, that his atonement really was what he said it would be, and that was a payment for sin. Well, these miracles in our passage today is what we're going to study, verses 51 to 54. Just a reminder very quickly, what have we discovered so far about the atonement? In that first paragraph, we learned, first of all, number one, that the atonement, the sacrifice of Christ, the crucifixion, was a necessary atonement. Holiness of God, sinfulness of man demanded atonement. God must punish sin. I'll do that either by sending someone to punish them forever in eternity or by punishing that sin on Christ on the cross. This is the only way that God can be both a loving, gracious, gracious justifier, and at the same time, the just judge, accounting for all evil, all sin. It's a necessary atonement. And last week, we noted that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary atonement. We look back to those sacrifices, those two goats on Yom Kippur. One demonstrates that he's taking on the death, the punishment that our sin deserves, The other represents going out to Azazel, out to nothingness, out to the wilderness that our sins are indeed forgiven. Jesus cried out, paid in full. That sin is paid for. That debt that we owed has been paid in full. Forgiveness secured. So a necessary atonement, a substitutionary atonement. Now, today, by looking at these miracles, we discovered in Jesus' crucifixion, it was a satisfactory atonement. It is a satisfactory atonement. Now, I use that word satisfactory because we're more familiar with it. That's not my first choice. My first choice would have been propitiatory. It's from the word propitiation that's used a couple of times in the Bible. John, specifically, 1 John 2, 1 John 4, use the word propitiation. Jesus was the propitiation for us. Meaning he satisfied God's wrath. He fully satisfied God's wrath for our sin. It's the satisfaction of justice. It's when justice is served and served fully. That is propitiation. You guys have probably seen those videos, those instant karma videos, right? You see some jerk cut off some old lady on the road and then he wrecks his car. And something inside of you cheers, yes, justice. You see the criminal and the CCTV steal something from the convenience store and walk out in the unsuspecting open arms of a policeman, justice is served, right? There is a sense of satisfaction of justice on a much more serious, much more cosmic way. This is what happened on the cross. Justice was served. Justice was satisfied. Jesus got what we deserved. He got our, what the old people used to say, is comeuppance. He got everything that we deserved. Justice was served. This is what John is saying in 1 John 1, 2 and 4, 10, that the death of Christ completely satisfied God's demand for justice, God's wrath for our sin. He was the propitiation for our sin. He, in his death, was the satisfactory and full payment for our sin. Isaiah 53, he was smitten of the Lord, afflicted. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to punish him. God has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, he, God, will be what? Satisfied. God is satisfied at the death of his son. How is he satisfied? That his justice has been served. This is a pleasing sacrifice 
to God. So justice was satisfied on the cross. Now, I believe that's what Matthew is pointing us to by reporting these miracles. Each of these miracles demonstrate that the cross brought satisfaction to God's justice and by so doing, the curse upon man for sin is being reversed. Judgment is now satisfied. The chastisement is now being lifted. And God is now reversing the curse against those who would believe. So what are these three miracles? The veil of the temple being torn from the top to the bottom. That's the first miracle. The earthquake resulting in tombs being opened and ancient saints getting up and walking around and testifying. So I put those two miracles together, earthquake and opening of tombs and resurrection. And then finally, the salvation of a centurion and others who were there with him, the miracle of salvation, a miracle of spiritual life. So let's look at each one of these miracles. First miracle is the veil of the temple torn. Verse 51, the first half of it. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this veil here wasn't a veil like you and I think of a veil, like a wedding veil, a thin, almost see-through netting or something. This would be a heavy, heavy curtain. What is this heavy curtain? Well, we talked a little bit bit about last time when we talked about the tabernacle. Remember, in, uh, in the middle of the tabernacle, there was a place called the holy place. And in that holy place, there were four things. There was a little table, there was a lampstand, there was an altar for incense, and there was another room. And that other room was called the Holy of Holies. And inside that room was, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant there was the represented face of God. There was the presence of God. Though the Jews have always believed in an omnipresent God, this is where God's manifest presence dwelt among the people. So they could not go in there. His holiness was too great, except for that one time a year during Yom Kippur. Well, that inner room was separated from the rest of the temple by this heavy, heavy curtain. I read this week about, uh, on some of the ancient Talmudic descriptions of this veil, what it was like. It was, at the time of Jesus, it was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. The veil itself, the curtain itself, was as thick as a person's hand is wide. It's made up of a thick cord that wove together 72 panels of thick fabric. It took 82 young ladies sewing for quite some time to put this thing together, and then it took dozens and dozens, on one account, instead 300 priests to put this all together and hang this giant, extremely heavy curtain in the temple. All that to say this, there's no way this thing would have just torn on its own. This is not some flimsy, sheer veil like you and I think of it. This is a heavy, thick curtain. Something else is interesting. Remember what time of day it was. It says Jesus in the ninth hour is when he cried out. So it would be 3 p.m. Well, the ninth hour is when all the priests would gather to the temple for the evening sacrifice. So there were dozens, if not hundreds, of priests right up there on Temple Mount and heard, if not saw, this happen. Now, there are some things that they should have understood. They probably didn't. Some of them may have, but... They should have understood instantly when this took place. 
One thing they should have understood is that the old age, the, the age, the, the system of sacrifices and blood and taking these things, this, this, this system of feasts is over. This was over. This, this off-limits area of the temple and this, this process of taking these lambs and going through all these sacrifices, they should have understood that this was over. That age had come to an end. Of course, Jesus talked about this, that he was ushering in a new age, a different age, different garments, different wineskins. Another thing they should have derived, at least had they studied their Old Testament, they should have understood is that Jesus' sacrifice, unlike all the other sacrifices that had gone before, Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and final. The atonement was actually satisfactory. It was full. It was complete. It was comprehensive. The writer of Hebrews would later say in chapter 9, beginning of verse 25, in Jesus coming to the cross, it was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This sacrifice was complete. This sacrifice was once for all. This sacrifice was full and final. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So they should have understood that the sacrificial system was over. They should have understood that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and final, and they also should have understood that because of Christ's work, man now can approach God. The veil of separation had been torn. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we can go and enter this now by the blood, not of the lamb that was given or the goat that was given for the one single priest once a year. No, the blood of Jesus we can enter these holy places by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. You think about that process I talked about last week when on Yom Kippur, the priest would wash himself. He would offer up bulls for his own sin. That's all been taken care of. It's all over and now we, washed and cleansed, and his blood sprinkled on the altar, now we can walk in and have communion with God. To summarize, I think what we could say is this miracle teaches us that because of Christ's satisfactory, propitiatory atonement, man can commune directly with God. You know that word, atonement, it's from a Middle English word, and it simply means at-one-ment, bringing us together with God, reconciling us to God. Communion with God had been lost at the fall, right? Fellowship with God had been lost. You find man running around trying to patch together some clothes, hiding away from God's piercing justice, knowing that they had done wrong. God is veiled. God is hidden from man. Time goes forward, he's, he's always behind that curtain. Only through blood and special process could man ever have a relationship with God and receive mercy. 
Again and again, year after year, throughout all of Israel's history, God is finding man sinful, sinning, no communion. But the work of Jesus on the cross, this miracle of the veil, teaches that Christ, by His satisfactory atonement, has restored communion. We now have communion with God because of what Christ accomplished. What's the next miracle? Again, I combine the earthquake and the raising of the ancient saints. Look there at verse 51 again. The earth shook, second part of 51, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now here is the second miracle, the capstone of which is the resurrection of these saints. It would not surprise me if there were some here and you did not ever notice this miracle before. Maybe even sounds a little bizarre to you. Just a couple brief sentences here, and it tells us that all these people raised up from the dead and went around the city. Just a couple of sentences here. So let's break down what happened, and that will help us interpret and apply this. So there was this earthquake, and Jesus dies, there's this earthquake, and unsurprisingly, the tombs broke open. Back, in, com- back then, the common tombs were either above ground and sort of a casket-like uh, structure. They were also above ground like mausoleums sometimes, and they were also above ground like we think of when we think of Jesus, uh, something being cut into rock with a stone put over it. So all of these different tombs would have had some kind of stone or plaster to cover the opening of the grave. So if there's an earthquake, it's not far-fetched to imagine why many of these tombstones, these stones that covered the tombs, would break open. What is surprising here is that many of these tombs are then, were then found to be empty. Interestingly, Matthew, Matthew used the term like Paul, that Paul liked to use about the people, he called them saints, hagias, holy ones. So it's possible what, what Matthew had in mind is that these are not just the tombs of anybody. These are tombs of people who were faithful, who were considered believers, who looked forward to the Messiah, who trusted in what the Messiah would bring. Maybe they didn't understand the name or the locations or, or every prophecy that was given to them, but they understood and they hoped in the coming Messiah. They were good people who believed and faithful to Yahweh, faithful to the covenant. These were the saints of old. Then Matthew says something very carefully, very specific, and that is three days later, after Christ arose, these people whose tombs were empty appeared around Jerusalem. And he tells us again, very specifically, it happened after Christ arose. I think Matthew puts it in there for us to connect the dots to Christ's own resurrection, to look forward, to think about Christ's own resurrected self. We don't have a lot of information, and we certainly don't have a timeline. Those 40 or so days after Christ rose from the grave and then ascended, we don't, we don't really have a timeline what happened in those days. What we do have is sort of vague and well, sort of metaphysical. He just sort of appears and vanishes. He talks to people and they don't understand who he is and then he disappears, he tells them not to touch him, he disappears and appears again and speaks to people, gives instruction and eventually he just sort of floats away. Something very different, something very 
bizarre and metaphysical. So what that tells me is that Jesus in his resurrected state is not the same as you and me. His, his resurrected, reconstituted body was not just earthly like we think of our own bodies, flesh and blood now. Certainly there was something recognizable there, something of a reconstitution of the former self. But it definitely wasn't something like Lazarus who, who basically just ex- experienced extreme healing and just got his old body back and, and lived until he died again. No, Jesus in his resurrection, had a new body, a resurrected body, a glorified body. And I think Matthew is intending to explain to us that these people had a very similar experience. They themselves had these ethereal, almost metaphysical bodies. They appeared, they testified, they disappeared. We don't know where they went. They didn't continue living there on earth and died again like Lazarus. No, it was much like Jesus. They appeared and then just vanished. This is the resurrected state. These are the resurrected bodies. These are the glorified bodies of the bygone saints. So there's not very many details here about them. There's not many details about Jesus' own body and his own experience in a timeline there. I think Matthew is putting it here because he's telling us that the atonement of Christ was satisfactory in terms of restoring to humanity eternal life, glorified a glorified, eternal state. It's sufficient to say that what was lost in the garden was communion and perfect, eternal bodies, eternal life. The the blood of the atonement of Christ satisfied God's justice in such a way that it guaranteed resurrection. It guaranteed eternal life for those who would believe. This is the power of the atonement. Again, Matthew makes it clear, just as Paul did, Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first one who resurrected, who rose from the dead and received that first glorified body. And then them, these people also received their glorified, glorified bodies. Why? Because the legal justification for granting wicked sinners eternal glorified bodies is the atonement of Christ. That's why these tombs opened up. And then later these people were seen in their glorified state. So these two, first two miracles both speak to the satisfactory nature of the atonement. They each tell us of how this work of Christ on the cross guaranteed both eternal life and eternal communion with God. That's the first two miracles. There's one more miracle, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him kept keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The third miracle is the salvation of a soul. If you think about it this way, it's pretty amazing. The first miracle dealt with nature, God's power because of the atonement, God's power over nature, what's outside humanity. We have this, this veil being torn. And then we have a miracle in terms of the human body, the resurrection and the eternal glorification of human bodies. But the greatest miracle, he saved for last, the greatest miracle is that a wicked, foul, dead soul was granted spiritual life thanks to the all-sufficient atonement. 
Paul said, we humans are cursed, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, and are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I can't think of a better example of that statement than what we see of the soldiers. We studied in depth what the soldiers were doing to Jesus just verses before this. The kind of callousness, the kind of hatred, the kind of spite and malice they had to have had in their hearts to beat and mock and crucify the Son of God. And yet God's power, because the atonement is seen in the very people who did that, here is this man, we can only assume that he was one of the ones who was there torturing Jesus before his death. It says there are others there who did the same. I assume this are, these are other soldiers, perhaps under his command. Because of the satisfactory atonement, the power of the atonement, the miracle of spiritual resurrection is granted. This man was saved. God breathed spiritual life into his heart so that when they, he and his and the others there, when they saw Jesus, they understood and they believed. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been witnessing the darkest, most evil, sin-filled moment in human history. And yet Christ is building His church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. One of the most beautiful pictures. And maybe the power and truth of the satisfactory nature of the atonement is speaking to some of you now. Just fall on the knees of your heart, cry out to God, confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. All right, before we close, let me mention this. Earlier this week when I started preparing this sermon, uh, I had fully intended to spend a little over half of this sermon talking about the doctrine of limited atonement. That doctrine flows directly from this idea of the satisfactory nature of the atonement. But I got carried away with the main point of this text. And uh, so I'll just say this. Uh, if enough of you come up and bug me or email me, I will preach a sermon on the limited atonement. It is related to this. I'll do that next week. Um, otherwise, we'll just march on. We'll, regardless, we're going to make our way and be at the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, and we're all looking forward to that. But today we're so grateful for an atonement that truly satisfies God's wrath. It was completely and fully satisfactory. It propitiated God's wrath Against, against us, an atonement that is sufficient to propitiate, atonement that is sufficient to grant access to God, it's sufficient to end the sacrificial laws, it's sufficient to redeem the earth, redeem even the bodies that are on it, it's sufficient to grant life to the dead, it's sufficient to even save the worst of sinners. Let's thank God for this satisfactory atonement. Father, you are gracious, you are kind. It is only because of your graciousness, it is only because of your holy kindness that you would provide such a beautiful, wonderful way in which we would be saved. And again, it's not because it was free. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so, Lord, we look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. We trust in him. We believe in him. Again, grant those who are among us who don't know Christ, grant them regeneration which in turn will result in faith and then repentance. All of us, we pray that your word would yield results in our lives, cause us to worship you greater in a greater, greater way. Help us to love you and thank you 
and live our lives in honor of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, stand with me for a benediction. Again, this benediction is inspired by Isaiah 53. Now may we go with the joy that for our sake he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sin of many and making intercession for us, the transgressors. May we have joy in the Lord. Amen. Amen.